the joy and the excitement that we feel and experience this morning as we have the opportunity to gather like this. This, this is the first day of the week, the first Sunday in the month of October. And as we appreciate the blessing of God upon us as the seasons turn before our very eyes, perhaps today we can give some thought to spiritually the loveliness as we find in the descriptions of the church. And for that reason, I've entitled the lesson today, References to the Church. And you might have noted in the reading from Colossians 1 verse 18, we have there one of the references that we will consider during the course of our lesson this morning, but we will consider some others as well. And partly the reason that we shall do that is because of some of the introductory matters I'd like to share with you this morning. Isn't it amazing how sometimes a given entity or perhaps a given person can be referenced in different ways? And the specific example that I chose to use is my wife. For example, as one were to look, for instance, upon Denise, there might be those that would refer to her as mother. Namely, Deanna, Christian, Brooklyn could rightly do so. Others might well, such as myself, refer to her as my wife. Yet others might refer to her as a banker because she works there at Bank East in Gainesborough. Others could call her by the, employer, by the word Christian. Others may well consider the word friend to be appropriate. You see, there are many different descriptive words that could, in appropriate ways and places, be used to describe Denise. When one considers that idea, it only heightens our appreciation for how the New Testament presents the descriptions of the church. There are varying ways that the church is described. There are those who have looked upon that as a contradictory matter. Why doesn't the same scriptures always refer to the church in the same way? Why is it different? Why does one passage use one term, another passage uses a different one? Why does yet a third passage call it something entirely distinct? Does God have a reason for that? I might submit to you that just as surely as all the descriptions of Denise would in fact, taken in tandem, give us a fuller description of the kind of person that she is and the roles that she serves in life, Perhaps it could be that all of these descriptions of the church fulfill a similar activity. Namely, they all give us in tandem a deeper appreciation for the varying roles and the varying wonders to be found in the church of our Lord. With those kinds of ideas in mind today, let us look at three different descriptions of the church. First of all, there are those passages that very clearly identify the church as a kingdom. There are others, on the other hand, that very clearly speak of the church as a body. And yet, finally, there are some passages that, in fact, merely employ the word church as it references this body of believers. Those are three rather distinct terms, and in Greek, they're all separate. What might be some deeper significances by that today? As you turn your attention to that, let's look at them in exactly that order. Let's give our thoughts to the matter of the church as a kingdom first. The church as a kingdom. Perhaps amazingly, that word kingdom occurs 342 times throughout the nature of the King James Version of the Bible. 342 times, and of that number, some 158 of them are in the New Testament. That's not too far short of half of them. And yet, as one contemplates the usages and the context in which those references to the word kingdom are found, many of them clearly refer to the body, the organization that you and I would call the church. Uh, 
the church is being referenced as a kingdom. It is being described in the same way that a kingdom is described. In fact, notice just a few of the passages in which the kingdom is therein set forth. In Acts 8, verse number 12, when Philip was laboring in that area of Samaria, it is so beautifully and eloquently stated, then when they heard Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. One of the things that was a very significant element of the preaching of Philip apparently was the kingdom of God. Notice Paul in Acts 28, 31, in addition stated that as the curtain closes on the book of Acts, he was laboring in Rome, and on that occasion he preached concerning the kingdom of God. Later, we can even appreciate passages such as Colossians 1, 13, where there again the inspired apostle stated, we've been delivered from the evil, the character of this world, and translated into the kingdom of his dear son. Now notice the Colossians had been directly translated into this kingdom. It wasn't yet a kingdom that was at some distant point in the future to be. It was then and there, and the Colossians were members of it. Just as surely as Philip preached it as a realistic matter, and just as surely as Paul did the same. Those things challenge us perhaps in one final way to look at Revelation 12 verse 10 where there even the Apostle John, as he penned the Revelation, made reference to the kingdom that is noted, the kingdom, of course, of Jesus. Those things all help us appreciate that the kingdom and the church are rather closely linked in the New Testament, and the church is described as a kingdom. The very first occurrence in which Jesus did that perhaps is the one that rests most clearly upon our mind, isn't it? In the 16th chapter of Matthew, when our Lord came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, it was on that occasion, wasn't it, that he, as a part of that conversation, made this statement, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven." Jesus, in verse 18, promised to build the church, His church. But then in the next verse, He stated, I'll give the keys of the kingdom to you, Peter. Jesus didn't speak about one entity in one verse and a different one in the next. The church and the kingdom are one and the same. And on that day of Pentecost, Peter used those keys to fling the doors wide open. And thankfully, about 3,000 entered it that day. Those thoughts remind us, even Jesus made the statement, didn't he? My kingdom is not of this world, John 18, 36. To speak then of the church and the kingdom is to notice that that happens pretty frequently in the New Testament. The question that I would submit to us this morning, what's the significance of referring to the church as a kingdom? What did the Holy Spirit have in mind when it referenced the church as a kingdom? Might I submit that very clearly states the government of the church. In fact, when we employ the word kingdom today, that has direct relation to the government associated with that entity. It is very easy then to appreciate the church is not a democracy in any form. You see, as the various types of government are understood by us, one can speak of democracies, one can speak of kingdoms, 
And notice, the church is no democracy. The Lord very clearly, as well as the other speakers of the New Testament, affirmed that it is a kingdom. It is a divine monarchy. Those thoughts have a great significance for the way you and I must approach the church. For after all, look at some things that directly would be expected of any kingdom. Isn't it true that a kingdom has a king? A kingdom without a king is unimaginable, isn't it? In the Old Testament era, when Israel was a kingdom, when they chose them a king in 1 Samuel 8, each time a king would pass away, another would be appointed. Quite often, the prophets of God were directed to appoint certain individuals to be the successors as kings. Today, if the church is a kingdom, who is the king? Might I submit it is nobody in the Vatican in Italy. It is nobody in the headquarters of any organization in New York, Chicago, London, Germany, or anywhere else. In fact, isn't it true that we read in Matthew 28, 18, All power, Jesus said, is given unto me in heaven and in earth. If all power rests with him, does that not suggest and even demand that he is the king? And as if that weren't clear enough, in 1 Timothy 6.15, as well as Revelation 17.14, and finally in Revelation 19.16, all of them have these words, acclaim and praise Him, Jesus the Christ, as King of kings and Lord of lords. Our King is none other than Jesus the Christ, the very Son of God. He is the ruling monarch of this body known as the church. As such, we can well appreciate so many of the things then that one understands concerning kingship. That king has the right to make laws. That king has the right to direct the enforcement of those laws. And a king also has the right to judge the character of the keeping of those laws. But doesn't all of that rest with Jesus in the New Testament? In John fourteen fifteen, Jesus said, If you love me, keep my commandments. He thus demanded obedience to the commandments, and aren't we reminded that His commandments are not grievous? 1 John 5, verse 3. Notice in Acts 17, verses 30 and 31, the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent, because He hath appointed a day into which He will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom He hath ordained, whereof He hath given assurance unto all men in that He hath raised Him from the dead." In that passage alone, we notice the commandment concerning the statements, the ordinances of Jesus. We notice the fact that all will be judged by virtue of that man. That's what one would expect of a king, isn't it? As one thinks about these matters, it seems so terribly clear, doesn't it, that the church, far from being a democracy, is in fact a kingdom. And that has implications for the following considerations. You see, that very thought is what is problematic to some in our world today and has been for, in some ways, decades. Why is it problematic? Think about the approach and the perspective that so many choose to take in terms of governmental affairs. We noted earlier to say the church is a kingdom is to make reference to its government. But yet think about the good old United States of America. Our founding fathers were sold on the reality that democracy is the best way to establish and put in place a government. 
and in particular the type of government that our land has chosen, is to elect representatives, those to serve for us at varying levels of government, the local level, the state level, the federal level. You and I elect these individuals who serve as our representatives. They are to enact the laws that you and I would enact if we were there. They are to, in fact, put in place that executive branch to, in fact, enforce those matters. And finally, to make assurances that judgment of them can also occur. Note again, we elect representatives to do this. There are some who thus have naturally wondered if our founding fathers thought that was the best way and if it has served seemingly successfully in various countries around the world, why not arrange religious bodies to do that? That is to say, why not elect representatives to go and, for instance, attend some conference and thus enact and put in place the doctrinal laws that you and I are to follow? Why not give these individuals as representatives the authority to not only enact these laws but to put them in writing and to distribute them for enforcement in the various religious bodies that would serve beneath the jurisdiction of this conference or convention? Can you see the likeness and why many perhaps patterning things after our own government would seemingly find that desirable? Notice there is a fundamental difference, however, in the approaches. If the church is a kingdom, there is no place for democracy. None. There is to be no conference to determine the doctrine. There is to be no convention, no synod, no ruling body of individuals as human representatives to dictate, discern, and determine what the doctrinal matters of that body are. If the church is a kingdom, the king must do it, and only he has the authorization for it. We've previously learned, haven't we, that Jesus is our king, and hence we can well appreciate that the doctrinal matters for the church have been laid down about 20 centuries ago. No man has any right to, in fact, position himself as a representative to change in any way the doctrinal matters that the king has decreed. If individuals of the distant past would have understood better the kingdom character of the church, there would never have been some of the problems that have so hurt the matters of religion in the world today. I've listed only one example but many, many others could have been chosen. In 1784, the Methodist Conference, for example, set forth this decree, all men are conceived and born in sin. And that was a doctrine that was to be taught and adhered to among the Methodist churches by virtue of the authority of the Methodist discipline. However, in 1910, at another meeting of the Methodist Conference, Obviously, well over a century later, but nonetheless, another meeting of this Methodist conference made the decree that that was incorrect. They repealed and overturned that former doctrine, and my question has to be this. Both of them could not be right. If the latter overturned and repealed the former, then which one of the positions was correct? Isn't that a rather profound consideration? Today, if a group of individuals were to meet with all the solemnity and all the degree of being representatives of some group of churches, if that body were to decree baptism is no part of God's plan for salvation, 
How binding would that be in heaven? Would it change in any way the decrees of the king? It would not. And today, can we not see the fallacy, the short-sightedness, and the foolishness of men thinking they can alter anything about the worship of the church, the plan of salvation, the entrance requirements for the church, or yea, any of its positions, because the king has specified it. And what I write in a book, or what any group of men write in any book, is useless when it comes to determining the doctrine of the kingdom. So to speak of the church as a kingdom is to say a great deal about its government and the fact that the king is the ruling supreme and the king is the ruling monarch. But that isn't the only way the church is represented in the New Testament, is it? In addition to being a kingdom, the church is referenced as a body. What does it mean to refer to the church in that way? And what critical ideas might you and I make certain to appreciate by virtue of it? Notice that the word body occurs 174 times in the King James Version of the Bible. And remarkably, 135 of them are in the New Testament. A fair number of that 135 has reference to not a physical body, but a spiritual body that you and I in other passages would call the church. Note just a few of those references to the body. In Romans 12, verse number 5, the inspired apostle therein made the statement, as you can notice on that screen, you are one body in Christ. He obviously wasn't speaking of his own physical body, that is, Paul was, but rather they were members. The church in Rome constituted a body of Christ. In addition to that, in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13, to that church in Corinth, Paul said, For by the Spirit, by one Spirit, you are all baptized into one body. Those members of the congregation at Corinth had thus, by their immersion and by the power of the Holy Spirit, become members of one body. In addition to those, in Ephesians 1, verses 22 and 23, there the inspired apostle said, And hath put all things under his feet, and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. There, by a powerful stroke of genius and language, Paul equated the body and the church, and it's unmistakable. We perhaps in one final way note the text that was read in our hearing this morning. Speaking of Jesus, and He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He might have the preeminence. That text from Colossians 1.18 challenges us to appreciate again Jesus as head of the body, which in turn is the church. Might we ask a similar question than, than that to which we asked before? What is being said to us when it is said that the church is a body? That isn't referring to its government. To say that it's a kingdom is to specify its government. To say that it's a body is to specify its organization. Notice that those are distinct matters. And just as surely thus as a person can be referred to in different words or ways and taken in tandem, they help appreciate more fully the fullness of that person. So to here, the church is a kingdom that tells us its government. The church is a body that tells us its organization. Notice some passages that help us appreciate the organization of the church. 
might I submit, when we think of a physical body, one of the natural things that seems to accord to it is to ask, it has to have a head. A body without a head is lifeless. We perhaps remember on the farm, you take the head off that chicken and you soon will eat it. The chicken comes to be dead, doesn't it? Its head is removed. Well, just as surely as a body requires that head, might we notice it's only one head. It is a rather tremendous stroke of monstrosity to consider a body with more than one head. And by the same way, to consider perhaps one head with more than one body. Those kinds of things, when they unnaturally occur in nature, that organism, that animal, is not healthy and likely will not live long. But when there is one body and one head, and both are acting in the way that they should, and all the normal, natural activities are taking place, we appreciate a healthiness. We see a natural presentation of the rightful order of things. As you notice some of those things, notice what the New Testament says about the church. How many heads does the church have? One. Notice we just read that, didn't we? If we revisit perhaps another adjacent text to it in Ephesians 4 verse 4, he says there's one body. Thus, we've learned how many bodies there are. We should then naturally expect that there would be one head for that one body. What was it again that Paul wrote in Colossians 1.18? Speaking of Christ, He is the head of the body. That word head is singular. It is not plural. The body which is one has a head which is one. One body for one head. As we appreciate the simplicity of that thought, that again is telling us the organization of the church. And what's more, you might notice with me that the various members of the body... Also, we understand, exhibit harmony. They exhibit a sense of working together. For example, we each understand that we have a couple of hands, a couple of feet, we have a couple of ears, a nose, a mouth, the other elements of the body. Paul addressed those matters in 1 Corinthians 12. If we may perhaps build upon that and ask some ideas, is it not the case that the members of your body work very harmoniously together. Consider the case, for instance, what if you sprain your foot? Perhaps turn your ankle, and hence you must use crutches upon one of your legs. Does the other foot complain? I have to bear all the weight. I'm unwilling to do this. Well, not at all. The other foot seems happy for a protracted period of time to bear the burden of the weight of your body until the other can recover. Or if one ear is damaged, perhaps in time, does the other ear complain that I have to do all the hearing? Well, of course not. The two work together, encouraging, supporting, aiding in the fully functioning of the body. So it should be in the church of our Lord. Paul stated in 1 Corinthians 12 that even with regard to the members that might be deemed more uncomely, they are still necessary. They are still vital, essential parts for the overall functioning of the body. And hence, we have no position or place to hierarchically label members as you're not needed or you're vital. All of us are members of the body of Christ. 
All of us have skills, capabilities, talents, and works that we can do. And God, yea, expects that we will employ them for the accomplishment of the work of the body. And just in the same way that members, be they comely or uncomely in the body, they're still needed, so too that's true in the church. Notice how that then describing the church as a body has a great deal of significance as we compare it to the functioning of our physical body. The fact there's one head and the fact of the members that work in harmony one with another. These matters in description to this take us to the third element of description for the church today. And it is simply the word church itself. How many times in the New Testament do we find the usage of that word church? And haven't we come to look upon that word so lovely and so highly? You might notice with me that some 114 times in the New Testament we find this word ekklesia. E-K-K-L-E-S-I-A, ekklesia. That's a Greek word and it simply means the called out. It, you see, does simply have the following character about its nature. The word ek is a prefix in Greek that simply means out of. That word klesis, K-L-E-S-I-S, means a calling. And so the Greeks put that together and said ekklesia means a calling or a calling out, those that are called. Jesus and the inspired others of the New Testament chose that word to describe those called out of the world into a covenant relationship with God through the Savior. That's a very special word. There clearly are many ways that one could imagine being called out. For instance, one could serve in the military and be called to then serve his country to fight for freedom. But that's not the way the Lord used that word. That's not the principal significance. Jesus and those other writers referenced you and I as those that are called out again of this world that's ruled by Satan into a covenant relationship with the God of heaven through Jesus Christ our Lord. And those who are in that position comprise the church. They make it up. We compose it. And thus, as we appreciate that notion and the way that that word is used, doesn't that emphasize in this case that when we refer to the church, the body of Christ, the kingdom as the church, we are explicitly referring to its relationship to the world. We've been called out of the world. You and I cannot straddle the fence. We can't have one foot in the world and think that we can have one in this thing called church. We, by the very nature of the word church, have been called out of the world. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. 1 John 2, verses 15 and 16. And do not we further read in James 4, 4, that those who would make themselves friends of the world, by that nature, make themselves enemies of God. Paul asserted, didn't he, in great power and majesty of his separation from following the pursuits, the things of the world. And if you and I are the church, we must do the same. Those things the world approves and lifts so highly, be it drinking, social drinking, various kinds of sexual activity, immorality, dancing, various other kinds of profanity and language, those things are of the world. 
we as part of the church have been called out of that environment into this relationship with God. Thus, those things must be left behind. They are not a part of you and I and our life as faithful members of the church. By the very usage of the word, we've been called out of that. Maybe we can use that then to help us appreciate the place we serve and the place that we occupy as servants of God. These three words that we've looked at today do bring us to an element of conclusion as we draw our lesson to its finality this morning because we've noticed three words that we've looked at, each of which have been used to describe the church. The church is a kingdom. The church is a body. And then there is the church. All three are properly and rightly used because they identify different aspects of this thing known as this relationship with God. To say it's a kingdom describes its government. Jesus is the king, and we must dutifully and humbly do that which is his bidding. To say that it's a body is to describe its organization. We have one head, and we mutually support and encourage each other. Finally, as the church, we're called out of the world because that's what ecclesia means, into a saved relationship with God through Christ. Today, are you a member of that kingdom, that body, that church? All that's asking the same question. If you have not allowed yourself to become a member of it, notice, no man has any right because it's a kingdom to add you to it. Only the king can do that. The king has said how he will add you to the kingdom. He will gladly do that as you respond in faithful obedience to the acts that lead to baptism. Namely, you need to believe Jesus to be the King, the Messiah, the Son of God. You need to repent of your sins. You need to confess His name as the Son of God. And then as you're baptized, as you're immersed for the remission of sins, Acts 2.47 reminds us, the King will add you to His kingdom. But then, if you have become a member of that body but you have not been faithful to that calling. You have perhaps, though once faithful, you've lapsed back into following the world. You're not separate from it anymore, any longer. Come back to that first love, just as the church in Ephesus was commanded to do in Revelation 2. If we could help you in either of those ways today, a song of invitation has been selected, and we certainly would be happy to assist in whatever way that we can in, in, your, in a public obedience to the gospel. We would only ask that you let us know in what way we might assist while together we stand and while we sing.